welcome to another episode of the Rental Journal Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the equipment rental industry. I'm your host, Mark Simonson, and today's guest is Patrick Tunnicliffe. Now, Patrick worked for a rental business in British Columbia, Canada for about a decade and was the general manager. And I actually found out during the podcast episode that Patrick also represented Canada in snowboarding, which is is quite an amazing story in itself, which we'll we'll get into. He got to the point where he was almost trying to qualify for the Olympic Games. So, yeah, about a decade of experience as, as a general manager at a rental business. He he caught an itch in technology and consulting, and and he's really in love with the equipment rental industry. So we talk about some of the direction he's gone in terms of being able to consult back into the industry as well. So Patrick, why don't we start off with by learning about how you first became involved in the equipment rental industry? Yeah, sure. I actually got involved in the equipment industry in about 2010, but I'll just start with where I started in the rental industry, which was in it when I was in high school. Uh, grade nine or 10, I took a job at a marina. It was on the St. Lawrence River between New York State and the province of Ontario. I spent actually about seven summers there. I was cleaning boats, pumping gas, and then eventually I was repairing boats. And then eventually I was maintaining inventory and stock in the store and even recovering boats that were broken down or having rental clients that were lost on the river. And so I was doing the whole shebang, you know, from the client engagement and maintaining things in the front and the back end. It was, I didn't know at the time, I just thought that was jobs, but it turned out out of all my friends, like I had a pretty cool job and I got to spend a lot of time on the, on the river and, and on about rental, which, you know, is an industry that not everybody's super familiar with uh, in general. A whole bunch of life happened in between. And when I moved from the Ontario region to the West coast of Canada, I got a job at a general tool and party rental company and spent about 10 years there. Initially, it was a part-time effort, again, uh, seasonally, because I had some snowboard pursuits that I was working on and then shifted into full-time engagement and pretty well right away moved to the general manager role, which is what kept me busy for several years. So then when you started working with the boating company for the rentals, like did what was your perception of the rental industry before then? Were you even aware that there was a like a big industry in regards to rental? Well, I sort of did. There was a general tool rental shop in town, lawnmowers and whatnot. But growing up in the countryside, like my dad and my friends' dads and, and so on, we all had our own lawnmowers and weed whackers and garages full of all the things that you would need, with the exception being maybe you're pouring concrete and some special tools were needed there, but I grew up under this pretense that, you know, dads owned everything. <laughs> so later in life, you know, going through uh, high school and university, I realized that there was this big enterprise that we know is construction and tool rental. Yeah. I always tell people when they drive down the highways and they see equipment on the side of the road, most of the time that equipment is rented and they're like, what? I thought the construction companies own those pieces of equipment. And they're always surprised. Yeah, I have those conversations with people all the time when I'm talking about the rental industry. It blows their mind that the equipment on the construction sites quite often is owned by someone else. Yeah. So, so you did say that you moved over to the West Coast and then you're pursuing snowboarding. So what was all that about? Yeah, well, actually, again, in my 
formative teenage years, I was into snowboarding um, in a pretty big way, uh, escalating in in involvement. Uh, snowboard cross is that event. It's in the Olympics where there's either four or six people all on the same uh, race course, navigating gates, jumps, and bank turns. First across the line takes the takes the win. A number of successive heats determines the champion at the end of the day. And I went from the you know provincial and the state races to the nationals to the continental races, and eventually I represented Canada on the World Cup. I got to travel around the world. You know, I saw Japan, Korea, most of the European big ski countries, and spent summers in South America. It was it was pretty awesome. And actually, my first engineering job, like when I'd finished my education in mechanical engineering, the company identified that I was really pushing hard for this Olympic Games in 2010. And so they actually supported me in like a massive way in that in my own bid to try to get there. Wow. So being how, how do you think being a professional athlete then transfers to full time working career and, and 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 working through i guess yeah like having a job really like did it transfer because to be a professional athlete you have to have the right mentality there has to be a lot of discipline as well so how does that transfer hey rental journal podcast listeners tired of manual data entry in your crm does your current crm slow you down it's time to build and close deals from anywhere remove manual data entry create and send quotes in three clicks with arrow Finally, a powerful way to close deals on your phone. See Arrow in action at the ARA show in Las Vegas on October 17th through 20th. The Arrow team will be at booth 1636 to talk to you, answer your questions, and show you how you can search for inventory in seconds, track your pipeline, send e-documents, and more. Plus, while you're there, you can pick up a free t-shirt and enter Arrow's raffle to win a Yeti cooler. Unlock your growth with Arrow the tool built specifically for rental dealers to build and close big deals in a simple, powerful way. Enjoy the rest of the podcast, but be sure to check out Arrow at booth 1636 at the 2021 ARA show in Las Vegas. Absolutely. I'm not going to pretend that I was aware of the advantages of being a high level, you know, conditioned athlete when I entered or I was participating in, you know, my professional career, but it was pointed out somewhere along the lines where, you know, even though I was doing a lot of traveling, when I would come back to my day-to-day at the company and I have this stack of deliverables that need doing, you know, I would approach it like I would my racing. I've got the year ahead or the project ahead. And I had, yeah, you had to iteratively and incrementally take down these projects or in the snowboard space. So it periodized my strength and conditioning and training and nutrition, you know, over the whole entire year with that focus on the the whole year or the, the greater project as a whole. And they just sort of worked really well together. And the feedback that I was getting is that, you know, without being pushed to treat my career like that, I was applying those learnings to my career and it worked out really well. And now that I appreciate that, you know, I share that story with people and, and with younger, you know, colleagues, you know, really think about what the greater goals are and, and think about how every day you can knock down pieces of that goal. You doesn't have to be a big swing, you know, to achieve big things at work. Mm, yeah, definitely. So then what was the moment where you finished up being a professional athlete and then went into full-time work then and, and pursued that? 
Yeah, so I mentioned I was working seasonally for the rental shop in on the West Coast uh, for a couple of years. I was splitting my time uh, with the pursuit to the 2014 Olympics uh, because the 2010 didn't work out. Unfortunately, on one grave day in Park City, Utah, I woke up in an MRI machine at the Park City Medical Center with two broken arms and a concussion. So the preceding events to arriving there are a little blurry, but that was my last pro race. <laughs> so when I hung up the race board, figured that Russia wasn't going to be in the cards or it wasn't uh, something that I was prepared to pursue. I came back to work, you know, when I had more use of my, my limbs and mind and was presented with an opportunity to take the company, you know, into its next stages and of growth and, and expansion. And so that was pretty, I had to think about that because my engineering is my background um, you know, with a focus on process and efficiency and, and so on. But, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I talked with the, the owners was like, I could really apply a lot of these concepts to the rental process. And there's a ton of business processes that are happening you know, under any rental roof, like ask any business, uh, rental business owner, you know, how many questions come and go through them every day. And I just really enjoy analyzing and refining and providing specs and references to all those processes. And, and it worked out really well. But, uh, yeah, that was my transition from, you know, snowboard racer slash engineer into rental equipment. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I have to ask, so what's it like breaking two arms then? Because were you in two casts <laughs> then? Like, how did that work yeah. out? I definitely had two casts. I I uh, had a pretty rough go with, you know, two arms. It, it was two individual casts. I didn't have like one of those whole upper body molds. So luckily I could, you know, get doors opened, you know, with a bit of trouble. And um, But yeah, that was that was a rough, you know, month or two. Uh, not to mention, well, I did mention my bang my head up. So I had lots of challenges around concussions. And, you know, that's something that people talk about a lot these days, you want to take care of your noggin. And, you know, I, I'll tell everyone, go ahead and wear your helmets and whatever it is that you're participating in for sports, because mine saved my life. And I don't know what I would be without without you know, brain that I luckily still have working for me. Yeah, definitely. So so when you just when you went back into full-time work, did you go straight back into that that general general tool and party business? And then how did the, your roles evolve from there? Yeah. So in the years that I was working in a part-time capacity, I was delivering, I was tool cleaning, I was assisting with tent erection, and but over time spending more and more time at the counter and finding that customers would be better served. Uh, I was, I was taking orders and drawing up contracts. If there was a bit more information like in the rental management software. And so I made it my goal to sort of fill that software with as much reference material as I possibly could. Like there's this guy that worked there. His name was Rick and Rick more or less knows everything about everything, at least in rental in that, in that store, like where it is, where it came from, how it is and how it goes. And you know, everybody would turn to Rick for the special advice on the special cases and wherever I could, I, you know, just took this sort of position that if Rick would have a response to a problem, where should that response sit within our information technology? Like where 
can that advice become infinitely reproducible? And, you know, I think that got the attention of the owners and that sort of thinking about making things work better all the time, you know, plus my engineering and man engineering management and maintenance backgrounds applied pretty, pretty closely to management in the rental space. So yeah, they asked me to take the GM role and, and go from there. My, my role was very hands-on for the first couple of years because we needed to grow past a sort of, I'll describe a position of adolescence. Like the company was, you know, not a startup as well, well established with many, many years of, of experience, but it was, it was at that proverbial glass ceiling where to break out, we needed to have some syst reproducible systems and references to, in to help empower team members to make decisions and, and move things forward. So I deployed that for a couple of years and then, you know, years three, four, or maybe year four and five, you know, it started to really grow legs and run and uh, was really happy with how things were running. So from there we were evolving into having departments, department leads and eyes on a regional expansion. So I, I was making plans for how to, how to grow outward from, from the single location that we were. So then let's dig a little bit deeper on that. So, so how, what were some of the key or common challenges around processes that you saw that were there that you're addressing? Because I think every business that's trying to grow knows that they've got manual processes or spreadsheets or things are duplicated and things like that. Or there's people, as you mentioned, that are like the go-to person for, for, for information. It's like a walking wiki page. Mm -hmm. so, so like, how, what were some of the common challenges that you saw and addressed? Well, I started with the, the low-hanging fruit. Like I mentioned, like what would Rick do? Like that was the, the, the advice that, you know, I would always like, put in my head to like solve problems so take his advice and make that referenceable material just infinitely reproducible it's on pop-ups are coming up when the client calls and the first couple of questions are asked about a specific unit well then the spec sheet there but not just the spec sheet what are the seven eight nine dozen scenarios that comes up when we're dealing with dewatering systems in cold weather you know stuff that is easy to forget and it's seasonal and Rick knows, but <laughs> not everybody has just at the tip of their tongue. So that was the, like one of the, that's the concept that applied across the whole company, basically all, all of the inventory, the warehouse team, like the delivery guys and the tool guys, they started getting, whether it's apps or reference, even on paper references of similar advices when they're cleaning tools or repairing basic repairs, you know, what are the things that we see come up and it's just right in front of them. And they might not normally think to check for a broken choke knob, but have, lo and behold, there's a broken choke knob. And so, you know, checklists, they, they start evolving and evolving and these manual paper-based checklists start finding their way into digital checklists and, and things keep evolving. Another big one was cataloging where everything is because we had everything from earth moving aerial equipment to plumbing supplies electrical supplies like right down to sockets we were renting sockets and uh, you know we'd, we'd rent the broom and the and the uh the mop and bucket if somebody asked <laughs> so 
cataloging all of these things into like I, I developed like a warehouse nomenclature that allowed me to identify you know one space on a like one envelope in one box on a shelf in a container on the west end of the yard so that that could be presented to a stock picker or a delivery driver as to where this thing could be because you can't ask Rick about everything so that those are the sort of the themes for growing efficiencies yeah so it sounds like technology is something that interests you as well because you spoke about um, moving from paper-based to digital so was that obviously having an engineering background as well so how, how did technology sort of fit into your interest when you got sort of going through all these stages yeah so like i said there were some paper-based solutions that evolved into technological based solutions and you know most everybody is running some form of rental management software um, the feature lists and the feature sets are unique upon all of them so you know if you're engaged with one and generally that's a five or ten year relationship you can have some confidence in modeling your processes to some degree around the capabilities of those platforms. So, you know, in, in workflow modeling and, and business process, you know, identification, you like to start from the top down from like a stakeholders and business owners perspective, you know, how do I want to see things working and how, do, how are we all rowing in the same direction? But when it comes to making the business really hum from an operations perspective you got to go from the, the ground up you start looking to the mechanics and the tool cleaners and the delivery personnel and the, the order takers and sort of identify what it is that they are doing all day and you'd be amazed at the bottlenecks that you can find <laughs> like some sometimes people are lined up at a printer you got a dozen people in the shop trying to walk out with tools and the printer pushes out a contract every 90 seconds and you know no one's taking orders while the printer's you know spooling so you know that's just one kind of strange example but you start looking at the whole process from a granular perspective and you can start finding ways to move people around your yard in a circular fashion instead of back and forth or tools that are commonly used you can map them on a piece of paper you know it's a, an analog approach but how long are the lines for the most frequently accessed tools and start looking at your warehousing solutions for efficiencies i think one of the big areas that like today this is this is like the the juicy bit about what's happening today those, those are all good advice that i just touched on but collaborative workplaces you know, we're all into the Zoom thing right now, and that's great that we can meet remotely, but when your order-taking team has questions for Rick that, you know, Rick isn't immediately available for because he's not to their left or to their right, if a corner of their screen shows, you know, that Rick is online in a platform like Slack, you know, these things are free for numbers of, a number of users and, and whatnot, you can ping them a question while you're filling out the customer details, getting insurance information, and you might have yourself an answer by the time that, you know, process that they're working on comes through. And, you know, that that's one customer facing solution, but then an extension of using these collaborative workplace software platforms is you can start engaging whole projects. So 
when your order taker is between phone calls, they can go down their task list, project lists, and and see how they can contribute to those, you know, that monthly meeting where they committed to you know, helping improve a process. And you know, people really start to get engaged in this stuff, and they start trying to find time to work on these projects in the day. Whereas if everybody is just left to their own devices, sort of, so to speak, or they don't have longer term projects and priorities that the whole company is striving to achieve, then it's wasted time. And you know, we, we engaged in all of these things at, at that company. And, and it was uh, really interesting to see people become engaged and really start running with the ball, knocking off, knocking down these longer term uh, projects. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine the, the the power of even just having FAQ, so frequently asked questions documented, yeah. so you can search. Uh, and then every time something comes in, you just add a new one in and a new one in, and then the new person starts, and then you say to them, "Hey, when someone asks you a question, or you got or you got a question, check out these FAQs and see mm-hmm. if the answer's there. If it's not, then yeah, as you mentioned, like I still think it's a little bit weird around Teams and Zoom, well, mostly Teams, I guess. It's like people still. Uh, like if I have someone's phone number and I want to talk to them, I just call them. But people mm-hmm. are still a bit like I'm in an iron about teams. Like, Hey, do I message the person to see if they're available or whatnot? And I, I feel like once teams really becomes embedded in, in most businesses properly, I think it's really going to change the way people engage. Cause it's a great example. It's like, you've got a question. If I can just shoot someone a, a question quickly and get an answer in 30 seconds, rather than, waiting half a day and then it turns onto a post-it note and then goes on the wall and then we end up delivering the equipment or doing whatever task I'm doing tomorrow instead of today. You know, it, it all sort of stacks up. It all stacks up and that's where it gets important to have like an internal policy around what happens with these communiques. The message that goes unanswered, it gets dragged and dropped into a task list or a special project or what have you. And somewhere along the line, we had some platform we used for a short period of time, but it was called task robot or, or something like that. And it, it became verbalized. Uh, is that the term like to Google something? So we started task botting one another with these outstanding tasks and it became like part of that culture, like to, to account for these what would ordinarily be a stick it posted note that just gets disregarded it became a point of topic that you would mm. go to your task bot list and and you know clean it up every once in a while yeah interesting so so how do you think that technology in the equipment rental industry stacks up against more mainstream industries yeah that's so funny right the like the construction and i'll say rental is construction adjacent it's pretty close it is pretty well known as the industry that has had the littlest amount of or the least amount of technological uptake there is a somewhere someone sent me recently a kpmg report on exactly that it's pointing out how the construction industry is several 10 years behind you know retail or imagine a restaurant without running those squirrel systems or whatever the the common brands are for those uh you know it's pure technologically focused process you know technologically complemented processes whereas 
when you, especially when you look at contractors that are in the construction space, you know, they're just doing everything on paper still. Uh, but talking about rental, it's so close to that. I think the rental management software, you know, these, the, the systems that I sort of call legacy that have been around for 20, 30 years, they've been around for 20 or 30 years. And if you had any mind toward technology in that period, you, you would have it there, but it is to a large degree, just a staple. And if you think about how walking around day to day, we all have this supercomputer in our pocket, the capability of that device compared to just a single install of you name the rental management software, those are drastically different capabilities. You know, I feel like they're, you know, on either ends of some sort of technology spectrum of, uh, of, of how useful it is. Um, I sure can't get a computer tower, you know, out to a job site. And luckily, many processes are online now with rental management software, but it's not like blown out to the point where you can travel. Everybody that's running something installed can go out to a customer site and, and pull up all the information that they need. And it's amazing that we're, we still have a bit of that legacy in place. There's software as a service rental platforms that are sort of floating around now. And, you know, those are mobile first, like completely, they could, they could, you could run the whole operation probably on your phone. I haven't seen them, but just understanding like how that works, how that technology is based in the cloud is, is very powerful. And yeah, hard to, hard to believe that rental is, is more or less still several years behind many technology first industries. Yeah, well, it's hard to believe because the industry is booming so much. If there's such a large growth in in the industry across the board, and I feel like it's only a matter of time when someone comes out with something that's clearly well advanced compared to whatever's currently in the market and is, and this is probably the critical point, is easy to deploy. So you can deploy it in days rather than months. And that's probably one of the big differences, I think, with true SaaS mobile apps that build, that are designed around the industry that, that roll out quickly. And I, I don't think it exists at the moment. Like you can roll out certain CRMs that are clearly being mapped out over, over the last decade to be specialized, both for sales teams and things like that. And technically, if you wanted to, you could get it up and running in 24 hours if you really wanted to. If you told someone you wanted to roll out a rental management solution in, in 24 hours or a week, that sort of just laugh at you. So it's, uh, I think most of the time it's months. It's, 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 a, it's a three month project, maybe, maybe even a year, some of them. Yeah, it's true. The, the truth of the matter is, you know, a, a CRM system in its basic sense, contact details, phone numbers and, and email threads, it's pretty reproducible. Um, in the rental space, if you start, considering the data, whether that's transactional data, reoccurring billing data, or inventory data, right down to, you, you can go from, you know, a make model serial number of a machine, but you can get right into the engine class, the, the fuel type, the, the bolt sizes of, you know, all the way down in those machines. So if you're trying to capture all of that and you have use cases that, you know, provide a return on your investment for inputting that 
granularity into your into your rental management software solution, then it's going to take a long, long time. But you're right that there is a big challenge around more or less exporting that data from your current solution or your paper solution and importing it into a new framework, a new rental management software solution. And they don't talk well together. That, that creates a lot of work and, it, and it's hard to do well. I think the future is going to evolve to a point where these integrations and, and APIs are, are going to make that a little more approachable. And, and I think like many industries before, before the rental technology, technological industry, or at least the, the refinement of it, they, they learned that to, information needs to be shared to be useful. And I think it's guarded to a large degree right now. So yeah, when the when the information starts passing hands a little more smoothly, it, it won't be quite so painful. But I mentioned earlier, like with a an enterprise resource planning outfit, like a big proper Oracle or SAP based platform, you know, that's a 10 year commitment at the minimum, because you're gonna spend a year or two, probably toward the latter, like really getting to deploy the capabilities of that system. Now, luckily, those are mostly aimed for larger, medium and larger sized corporations. Uh, rental management software is going to do for most of our mm. small and medium sized businesses. So you should be able to get up and going in a couple months, six months to really get to know it. Yeah. So something that you touched on earlier, which I want to talk about. So I would love to see the equipment rental industry have majority of their operations working off a tablet or mobile device. Obviously, there's always obviously going to be back at back office activities where people need to do financial transactions or uh, administration and things like that. But I, I think I saw a video of I can't remember. I'm, I'm sure it was the the Her CEO, maybe one of the main CEOs in the US, and he had a video. He was at a conference and he, they were asking him what the future looks like. And then he just held up his his mobile phone and said, if we can't operate off this, then where do we go from here, really? And I still think that the uptake hasn't been anywhere near what is required. And I sort of like what you said, where I think my vision is someone should be able to, technically, if they wanted to run their business off a tablet, I think that's really where we need to get to. Like, what's, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. The the tablet, the phone, the future, like this ability to hold this computing power in the palm of our hands is is incredible. The whole challenge is creating a platform that's going to make use of it. I referred a few times to the legacy rental software management platforms where they're based on database or database architecture and they have a server in the closet or maybe they have that mimicked in the cloud so that you know your devices in your hand can speak to the server in the closet which is actually in the cloud you know a little better but you know removing to a large degree that server in the closet concept and just having your data being processed in the cloud so that you're leaning on cellular infrastructure and you know these days more and more satellite infrastructure to have that computing power being performed by cloud operators like Amazon and Google and, and those, those, uh, those suppliers. So when the data 
becomes shared, when the data becomes accessible to the devices and it's being computed in real time in the, in the cloud space, then the whole game changes. Um, it, it makes very little sense in my mind to have so much of our operation and our financial insights and our KPIs being calculated, you know, when you can get to the system that's parked in the closet or, you know, that, that main, um, that main computer that has access, the priority access to the server, that is just shifting away from that centralized and moving to the, the cloud infrastructure with mm. freedom of data flow. Yeah, so let, let's go down that rabbit hole for a little bit. So I often hear people say, I want a cloud solution. And I think that's a very broad term. And I think a lot of people often get confused about what that actually means. So maybe let, let's unpack that a little bit. So, so what's the difference between a SaaS solution and an on-premise solution? And how does that define into cloud? Sure, I'll see if I can make some sense of that for the, for the listeners. Software as a solution in probably the simplest sense is your Gmail, like your, your, your Outlook mail, your Outlook live mail. You sign in with your password and your emails are happily stored in the cloud by the service provider, you know, free of charge, but ultimately it lives in a server farm at scale, a monstrous facility somewhere and backed up in like five and six copies around the world. Like it's, <laughs> it's amazing. But the software of a service term means that the software in that example is the email client that's compose new and reply all and set your signature settings. All of that is a software service and, and uh, software as a service implying that it's paid for on a subscription basis. That In that example, advertising and whatnot is what's paying for it. So it's purely free. I guess bridging from that, uh, there's such thing as a hybrid on-premises cloud implementation, and, and that's sort of analogous to having your desktop computer or your laptop computer with like a fully installed Outlook program on the computer, and it's designed then to download and, and synchronize your emails that exist in the cloud space, you know, backed up five and six times around the world and in safe. Um, but then it also downloads that localized copy to your device. That's that's uh, more or less well, what they describe as the hybrid premises cloud solution. And then the, the on-prem solution, like the pure play on-prem is what I was talking about earlier. When you have your server in the closet and you have computers scattered around the organization and they're literally tied by wire in most cases to the server and all the data is closed loop, it's staying within the facility and hopefully backed up within the facility and then double hopefully backed up off the facility. But yeah, that, that's sort of breaking apart the, the differences between cloud hybrid deployment and, and on-premises. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I feel like people often say they've got a cloud solution, but really they're just providing infrastructure as a service. They're providing hosting really, but they're still got an on-premise application that is required as part, as part of the deployment. And so I think the confusion often people get is that when they think of cloud, they think of a website and they think it needs to be web-based. 
but really there's lots of different options out there. Like you mentioned the hybrid model as well. So I think in the future, more and more things are going to be web-based and app-based, and that will be deemed as a cloud solution. But there is quite a lot out there. And I think the industry, as we spoke about already, is trying to catch up a little bit. And so there's always going to be this hybrid model in there until we get to a certain point. Yeah, I have thoughts on that. Um, the cloud being a web page is definitely, like you're right on the mark there. That's that's how I think most of us think about what the cloud is. It's a, it's a web page and that, that handles the... the the app or holds the application and, and handles the processing and whatnot. But the issue is that when your database, your rental management software system is based on a database, whether it's on-premises or whether that database is, is hosted in the cloud, there there's reasons to deploy one way or the other. Some may prefer that there's a um, there aren't ongoing costs associated with having your server in your closet. It's it's inexpensive in that regard. Of course, that balances out by the fact that you better have it backed up. And at some point in time, you're going to have capital costs associated with replacing it all. You know, there's there's back and forth, ebbs and flows, goods and bads for all three of those types of deployments. The problem is when so much of this infrastructure, like the rental management software solutions are based on these databases and they're resistant to be completely immersed and deployed in the cloud, then you have a sort of brick wall that's in the way. And like right now, I think most of the rental management software space is sitting on that hybrid or on location, on-premise deployment. And it's just a matter of time before what's growing on the other side of the wall, that, that software, that pure play software as a service and like I said, that free flow of data between services through through APIs and integrations, like once that starts to take hold and take some root or grow legs or whatever you want to say, then it's going to take off pretty quick. And I, I think we're really on the edge of that right now. It's it's very close. Yeah, no, I completely agree. That's what I mean. Whoever makes that plunge first properly and, and has a, a good crack at it and comes at it with a, a robust solution, I think he's going to yeah, have a pretty big market to serve. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I feel like the the mid-market and that sort of area is really just open open at the moment. There's plenty of solutions at the big end of town and plenty of the small end of town, but the guys that are in sort of the middle are sort of a bit confused at the moment on what the next step looks like. So, yeah, yeah very maybe, exciting. I, I just want to add one more thought to that concept. But I, I just sort of heralded the you know the wonders of of software as a service and what what's coming you know down the road but that's not everything like the technology that you use that you deploy and you engage with within your enterprise that's not the whole story the the business processes the culture the vision of the company everybody rowing their boat in one unified direction that's what makes great businesses operate the technology is a tool and yeah, people like you and I have a, just a great time talking about and knocking around the concepts of what's on-prem and what's a hybrid deployment and, and what's the next thing in software as a service. But there's rental operators, there's something like over 30,000 rental operators in, in North America. And they're all, for the most part, doing great work. They're profitable. And a lot of them aren't running software as a service. You know, it, it's not needed. The real attention 
needs to be with what makes your business tick, what makes your your employees when they're making decisions and iterating on improving things that it's all moving and pushing to that greater good of what the company is trying to strive for. So yeah, technology is great, but it's just a component of the greater picture. And I, I, that's what I learned when I was working as a general manager and, and growing that company that uh, there's a big picture, there's a whole year, there's a whole project that, that really is what you need to do or what you need to think about and, and think about it often, like think about it weekly, uh, have, have you know, thought sessions, brainstorms uh, weekly and, and for sure monthly, you know, to zoom out and get that perspective on things and include your team, well, with input on, on these decisions and values, but, but also in completing the iterative steps toward achieving those longer term projects. Yeah, I think a good way to think of it, I love, love the way you described it, technology is just a tool. And, and I guess an easy way to describe that is if you, let's just say we've got the best CRM in the world that is just perfect, which doesn't exist. Uh, we, we take that CRM and we put it in front of the worst sales rep in an organization. <laughs> it doesn't make him the best sales rep overnight. What makes him, Absolutely. what's going to make him the best sales rep is, as you mentioned, culture, training, process management, mentorship, him actually talking to customers, understanding requirements, problem solving. And the CRM is the tool to help him achieve those things. You need to think about the same thing of, of, of technology in, in entire businesses, the same thing. You, you need all those things that you mentioned about to, to strive. And, and I like the analogy rowing in the same direction. Yeah, exactly. And another way I've heard it put is, you know, riding the bus to the same destination. If you're, you know, it's not the end of the world. If you change your mind about the destination, you, everyone's welcome on and off the bus. But the whole point being, we're, we're all going in the same way as a company and with, with a vision and a, and a mission. Mm, awesome. All right. Well, let's learn a little bit more about you as a person. So sure. who, do you, who do you think played a big influence in your career from maybe a mentor perspective? Oh, yeah. That I have to reflect on many moons ago. Uh, when I finished my engineering degree and I moved out west into Vancouver and joined this ready mix, well, concrete manufacturing company in Vancouver. The operations leader, the superintendent, his name was Marv. He was a he was in his 60s at the time, late 60s, pushing 300 pounds ex rodeo guy. Like he was he was on the tour and you know the Canadian tour in Calgary and stuff. Uh, he was such a cool dude. Terrifying if he wanted to be, <laughs> but compassionate. Everyone knew, even though he had this massive, literally massive presence and, you know, he'll wag his finger at you and make sure you're doing good work all the time. But everybody knew that you could go to Marv and he'd give you the time, whatever time you need, be it work issues, personal issues. And I, I just learned so much from him about, you know, even pre-boomer uh, work ethics, but then having an eye, like it, it, you don't need to just lean on that hard work and grit, like to be a good neighbor and to be a friend was important. And, and he was successful in, in running 
you know, his part of the enterprise. And in addition to that, like my space, my focus was on maintenance engineering. I had five, five facilities and about 110 ready mix trucks that we were trying to keep rolling, you know, 363 days of the year. And he appreciated that he, as the maintenance superintendent, wasn't going to solve all the problems and create the efficiencies that that big animal of the responsibility uh, required. You know, I was just a young kid at the time and I had these skill sets in, in analyzing process management and business processes and efficiencies. And while he wanted me to work hard, <laughs> as any you know, upstanding employee should be working hard, he appreciated that and allowed me to learn that the whole year is what we're working on. It's, it's not just that one day and, and putting in 10, 11 hours to make sure it's done right. It's like, take that step back on the week or on the month. What's the maintenance plan? What's it look like? And what are the new technologies, believe it or not, the guy, you know, 15 years ago, looking at what the ERP is talking about and what the maintenance software is, is telling us. And, you know, there's people that are a part of the team for a reason. and you know, I thought that was pretty valuable advice looking back, seeing such a broad, well, getting such a broad exposure to what works and what doesn't work in the workplace at a, at a young age. Mm. Yeah, I like to use the analogy when people are just working out, working out, working 12 hours a day, just working on the treadmill, basically. So you're, you're on the yeah. treadmill, you're just grinding through it. You're not really taking a step back and looking at the big picture. And I feel like so many people are on that page and, and really, yeah, I think it's, it's really important to, to take a day or a couple of hours of the week or whatever it might be to really just analyze like, where, where am I going? Like what, obviously as a company, personal goals, team goals, um, family goals, whatever it might be that you're sort of working on. I think it's, it's very easy for people to, and I've even noticed that sometimes like I'll get into like this, this I'm going to call it a rut where I'm just working long hours for a, long, a large number of days. And then when I stop working and I sort of give myself some time, it, it, it clears your brain a little bit. Like it, it allows you to sort of think a little bit clearer. And oh yeah, yeah I think a lot of people forget, forget that sometimes. Yeah. Well, like I say, I was, brought into my professional career with like boomer pre-boomer like work ethics and I carry that around to this day I can sit at my desk and I can be working on a problem and look up six hours later and like haven't eaten anything drank any water used the bathroom or anything but I, I just it's hard for me to, to break out of that but like you say when you do break out of that and you realize the value of reflection and recognizing that iterating is a really good way to get to a solution. So yeah, work hard, you know, even if it's 45 minutes at a time with your, your phone on silent and sit back, what have I accomplished? What else is going on? Is this where I should be focusing my time right now? You know, maybe it doesn't need to be on you know, hour to hour increments, but it's so important to recognize the power of iteration and, and, and how that benefits, like improving your business and, and the processes within it. I think it's, you know, 
Michael Jordan would look at every training session as, you know, a chance to improve on something. You know, if he went out and shot hoops to shoot hoops, then that's one thing. You know, he did. Like, I think the guy would shoot 10,000 hoops or something crazy in a, in a day. But he was approaching it on the perspective that he's going to come out of that session better than he went in. And as business owners, if you're looking at whether it's your tech stack or your business processes, your team, your culture, stepping back, deciding, you know, based on the vision, mission, and the goals of your business and with the feedback of your team, what is going to be the focus for the next month or, or quarter and really planning on achieving that when you get to the next month or a quarter it's it's amazing when your business starts realizing that room to run and mm. you know 90 days can pass and you could just have had your head down and or you could be knocking down big milestones mm. and i think oh, there's a lot of uh like good things that come from ticking off objectives and goals and stuff like that as well if you're if you're not really got a sense of achieving objectives as a team and individually, you're sort of just working. And I'm sure there's like some psychology behind like the serotonin release and things like that and happiness and stuff when you can actually see that you're achieving something. Uh, it must be a whole course just on this sort of stuff, but it's, uh, it's definitely something that I think more people do need to think about and not just get on the grind and, and sort of hope that they're heading in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. So if you could give some advice to your younger self, what would you say? What would I say to my younger self? I, I can't express how valuable <laughs> what I've learned in the last 15, 20 years has been. <laughs> like More or less everything that, everything that you and I have talked to, I wish I knew when I was 23 years old. That would, that would be great. <laughs> the other thing that I found interesting, a couple of years ago, I read a book uh, called Getting to Yes. It's a, a really old book. It's, it's you know, nothing late breaking or bestseller list now, but it's about negotiation and negotiation is how it was sold and marketed. But I think the big takeaway from the book is that in life there, and in relationships and in negotiation, there's, yes, there's a middle ground there can be something more than the middle ground and that is identifying that maybe the person that you're talking with um you know on an or for an order or or maybe it's just in uh day-to-day -day happenstance you're the other kid's dad at the soccer field you're talking about uh, a trip to the lake or something just who's going to drive and what's it going to cost? Finding that middle line is, isn't everything. You can find a ground where everybody wins and everybody ends up better off. So in, in negotiation, you might be able to do a you know, zoomed out discovery with the other party and find that you have something to offer that isn't on the table initially, but they could use. And maybe that item or service that they could use won't cost me any time or anything because it's something that I've already achieved in my in my business or can provide as a service and so all of a sudden like this other party is going to realize value that I can provide and it costs me nothing you know that that was an awakening for me and it really helped me start to navigate 
growing my team and negotiating contracts, of course, with, with vendors and, and other service agreements. Um, but also at the same time, allowing someone else to get ahead, you know, by not even paying it forward. It's just something that I can add to the equation that isn't financial. Yeah, but that, that was really interesting. That, 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 that I would like to have told myself uh, years and years ago. Yeah, that's awesome. The other thing that sort of comes to mind when you talk about that is when you are working with somebody, whether it's negotiating or just general business, you don't know what's going on in their life as well. Like you don't know, mm -hmm. they might have some family problems, partner problems, work problems, sickness, kids problem. I, you have no idea what someone's going through. So you might think that someone's just been a bit of a dick or something <laughs> when mm -hmm. you're talking to them about something, but they might be going through a divorce. Who, who knows what they're going through? And so I think you need to not make assumptions too fast as well. I think a lot of people, they're, they're very reactionary. I guess mm -hmm. maybe it's probably the right term. Very reactionary when they they hear something like, oh, so-and-so said this or whatever it might be. So it's, it's trying to walk in the other person's shoes potentially or, or imagine it or understand where they're coming from and not jumping to conclusions too fast. I think that sort of ties really well in what you just said before. Yeah, for sure. And sometimes just maybe that value comes from being that ear for them. Like, I'm not saying everybody wants to share details about their divorce or, or and whatnot, but offering the opening for the topic to be discussed might be all it takes for that person to find like some emotional value in the conversation. And, you know, whether you call it karma or whether you're, paying it forward or back or, or anything, all of these things are creating opportunities for not just oneself, but those around you. And I think that's really powerful when it comes to, to business development and relationship building and just being a good neighbor. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, couldn't agree more with that. So how do you define success? Well, I'm a numbers guy and... I really get a kick out of, you know, finding efficiencies and advancing, you know, whatever it is that I'm working on. I get a sense of fulfillment from achieving milestones, checking off goals. And I have to say, when I can accomplish something with the skills that I have, and I get that sense of fulfillment, I really feel like it is a successful endeavor. Um, in itself. And if, if that endeavor is a component of my greater path, and I'm getting that sense of fulfillment from knocking down, you know, the next thing and the next thing, you know, that's fulfilling. And then sort of related to what we were just speaking about, like, if I can leverage what I'm achieving, uh, or I endeavor to improve to others, and, you know, my team can leverage some of the off of some of the achievements that I'm doing then that that sort of adds exponential feeling of fulfillment and you know the more that that builds the the better I feel so I guess I guess that's how I feel about success it's related to fulfilling my my uh, desire to improve mm, awesome that's really good to hear that yeah I think yeah, I think you only learn those sort of things over time as well. Like you, you figure out what you like and what you don't like, what, what, what gives you that sense of satisfaction. 
and you only get that with age. You, you know, you know, as you said, you wish you knew when you're 23. No one's going to know sure. the answers when they're 20. Like people talk about like learning more about who they are when they're like 40. <laughs> so, so, yeah, yeah so, exactly. So uh, yeah, it's it's look life's a journey, I guess. Like it's a bit of a, a corny one, but like it really is. Like you just got to learn over time. Absolutely, couldn't agree more. Yeah. All right, Patrick. Well, I really want to thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast. Thanks so much. I had a good time. This podcast episode was proudly supported by our premier partner, Cannot Tire.